You're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane at 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And this is Art Hour, and I'm one of your hosts, Mike Malsom. I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, we have uh, a great guest. I'm really excited to get caught up with Kate Lebo, um, great writer, award-winning writer, uh, and I didn't realize this until I kind of just did a little bit of research, an award-winning uh, baker or, or... It's something. true. They yeah. won't give you an award for just about any pie you make, though, so don't take that too seriously. Yeah, and uh, kind of what caught my eye, I've always wanted to get Kate on the radio show, but just came up with uh, her new release of collection of essays, uh, The Book of Difficult Fruit, and um, just a dazzling, thorny new essay collection from the New York Times. So there were some good reviews coming out. Anyway, so welcome, Kate Lebo. Thanks so much for having me, Mike and Eric. It's great. Hey, can I start with a question? Is it truly dazzling and thorny? Oh, <laughs> when you open the pages, they're so dazzling, they blind you. You can barely... It comes with gloves and sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, congratulations on that. That's really cool. When does the book come out? Uh, I came out on April 6th. So we're... Oh, so this to... month it just came out. Yeah, it just came out. I'm... I'm haunting social media to see if anybody loves me every day i'm ready to ready to try to stop doing that and just kind of sit and with it, it looks like you got a little bit of a, a mini tour going on as well some places where you're going to do you know readings and maybe yeah. book signings yeah so, yeah so from my uh office in spokane i'll read in new york city on thursday and then i'll read in iowa city on friday oh wow Gee. yeah yeah. So how did, tell me how the book started, the nexus of all of that, and kind of what thought, man, I'm going to write this book about difficult fruit, <laughs> sure. which is a great metaphor for a lot of things, but yeah, how did that all start? Right, well, and, you know, the, it, I feel like there were multiple sources of um, inspiration that at some point all kind of came together into me realizing that this could be a good idea for a book, but one of the main moments that brought me down this path towards difficult fruit was when I was getting my um, MFA at the University of Washington, my um, office mate, the poet Catherine Eulinson, brought me the sack of quince. It, I've never seen quince before. Are you familiar with quince? So they're related to apples and pears. They look like this kind of no. really chunky, beautiful pear. It's a, a kind of a greenish yellow and it can have a, a gray fuzz on it. So it's got this kind of beautiful masculine feminine thing going on. It smells amazing. So I, I picked up a, a quince from this sack of fruit and I did what I was used to doing with fruit, which is I just put it directly into my mouth and tried to eat it um, and discovered how foolish that that was absolutely raw quince is incredibly astringent incredibly sour some would say inedible in some countries they they eat it like that and they enjoy it but in, in a a, a, a sweet soaked american palate like mine could not handle it 
Um, so I, I can't remember if I spit it out or not. I might've just maintained my dignity and, and finished chewing it and swallowing it. Um, but it made me realize that I had a really narrow idea of what fruit was that my idea of fruit was really formed by the grocery store, you know, stuff in all the fruit in the grocery store um, is going to have to be sweet enough to appeal to kind of the mass market. It's going to have to be sturdy enough to have made it from, you know, California or Chile. Um, and um, it's got to be, you know, of uniform kind of taste and size and color and all of that. And there's just so much other fruit out there. Uh, the other thing that started to happen was as I did research into quince, one of the first things that I learned is that it's um, some scholars think that it's the biblical fruit of knowledge, uh, which just that my experience of quince fits that so well, that kind of beckoning, beautiful fruit that then when you take a bite of it, just shocks the hell out of you because it wasn't what you expected and it was harder than you expected. So that led me to start thinking like, wait, this could be, you know, a, a really cool metaphor, um, a really cool way for me to tell a lot of different stories um, where, I mean, what it ended up being was stories where kind of what nurtures and what harms get all tangled up. So my, the other kind of operating metaphor I had while I was writing the book was the blackberry bush. So something that's both thorny and sweet. Um, and I wanted uh, as much as possible I guess to just try to undermine uh, my own ideas, maybe the reader's ideas of sweetness and the value of sweetness, um, get beyond that and get into thornier, more dazzling subjects. <laughs> so can you give us an example of a story that you felt was a good metaphor for the quince, one that you came up with for your essay? Yeah, you know, the one that I ended up telling was a story, was a really intense family story. Um, so I, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I was going through all of my grandparents' things. We were visiting them and you know how when you're, you know, bored or you, for any ex reason, you'll just start going through your elders' things. Or I would, because I'm a nosy little, I was a nosy little girl. I do that too. <laughs> right. And I, um... As I was going through kind of the family albums and seeing all these cool photos of my dad when he was young and, you know, my grandfather and my uncles came across this family photo um, that included two little girls that I had never seen before, didn't know who they were. And as I dug further, I realized I had aunts that I had never been told about and that I had never met whose names I did not know. Um, that felt trying to find out what happened to those girls, who they were, why they weren't in our family. To me, the quince and the, the forbidden fruit of the quince was a really useful metaphor for trying to I, not only tell the story of discovering those girls, but, but the, the fear that I had um, as I started to ask questions of my family. What would happen um, to me if I, you know, uh, uh, was pursuing this story that everyone was afraid to talk about? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Were you able, able to uncover the mystery? Yeah, I was. And you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, it was, it was, it's funny. It's hard to figure out how to, how to summarize it. And I think if I wasn't, if I was talking to people right now who I didn't know very well, I probably wouldn't even be able to, to tell it to you because it feels so personal, but I know you too. And I like you too. So this is a lot easier, but, uh, <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> but basically, I mean, you'll, you'll find out through the course of the book, um, that was, 
my family was uh, mostly unable to give me a satisfying answer as to as to why they left, uh, which at first was something I was afraid of. And then I started to understand that um, there wasn't a good reason necessarily. It was a broken relationship. It was one that um, that uh, my grandparents, you know, brought all whatever their damage was. We all have our own damage, right? And they all brought that into that relationship with their daughters. Um, and I think they thought that they were doing the best thing for the family in some way. Um, I will never understand, you know, why they could um, kind of make that decision to abandon their two daughters. Um, but the two daughters have, you know, made their own lives. They are you know, great and healthy and um, living it up in um, Iowa and in Arizona. I'm in touch with both of them. Um, and, and I wow. came to understand, yeah, that, that my responsibility to them was just to be their niece. Um, I didn't, it wasn't in my power necessarily to repair that family relationship, um, nor could I necessarily, I mean, I don't think trying to do that would really be that helpful. That's, mm -hmm. that's something that's between you know, my, my grandparents um, and my um, dad and my uncle and my aunts. Um, but in the meantime, they're still my family and I still get to have whatever relationship I want with them. So that's, that's something that gets explored. Um, <laughs> that's a plot, I guess that's a, a, a plot line that, that gets viewed through the lens of a, a several different fruits as we go through the book. One of the, yeah, go ahead. Well, my question was, so it sounds like this book of essays is designed to be interconnected and it's not a bunch of pieces that have been published in other places that maybe you're exploring these metaphors um, through these different stories in your life. Would that be true? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And each essay arose on its own. They're all meant to be able to, most of them are meant to be able to stand alone, but there are these threads that weave through. And, you know, one of them is um, about femininity, about, you know, uh, cooking, about being out in the world, about being an artist. Um, and um, the aunt, my aunts, the story about my aunts also weaves through that, is me trying to figure out kind of through the qualities of these fruits, all the different ways um, one is a woman in the world. So food, and story uh, seems to be intertwined in your DNA for at least for a long time. Um, how did how did that start? When did that kind of were you? I mean, what came first, or did it just sort of like, man, I've got this thing about uh, food, but also this yearning desire to express yourself using food as really the conduit to do that, and having it come out with all these great metaphorical outcomes you know i was a writer first um as in you know before i ever learned how to cook i started to teach myself how to cook and ask my parents to teach me how to cook probably in my like early 20s or so mm. that's the moment we're like I, oh sorry once this is <laughs> darn <laughs> i have to figure out how to feed myself yeah. no that's all right we had this last week with luke baumgarten right. and i just write down it was at 7 53 it's 11 minutes in i just <laughs> edited it out you say whatever cuss words you want to say Right. <laughs> That's great. Um, and what was, so what was happening as I was learning how to cook is I was also trying to learn how to be a writer. And um, one of the things I tell my students now is I, I think that your obsessions, whether or not they feel um, artistically serious, 
are worthy of pursuit in your writing. If you are stuck, if you don't know what to write about, remember whatever it is that you're obsessed with, no, no matter you know how prosaic or how silly, try writing about, you know through that, not necessarily even about that, but through that. So I think I started um, combining food and story because it just, it worked for me. I, I had things to say where otherwise I was just sitting in my studio apartment getting um, all worked up looking at a blank piece of paper, which is valuable. I mean, just having your butt in the chair and looking at a blank piece of paper is necessary, but man, it's great when you find a subject that you have something to say about. So as you have this combination of story and food, how did that evolve into pie and whiskey? Oh, that's, yeah, let's see. So I was, um, I had written a chat book that became a book, um, kind of out of lark. It was called A Commonplace Book of Pie. Um, and the idea was that your favorite pie would say something about who you were. And these prose poems that I ended up writing um, were kind of these like little mini character sketches. And anyway, I was on tour for that. I was, I'd met Sam at Centrum a year or two before, I think. Um, and he said, why don't you come to town? We'll throw an event for you here. Uh, we'll bake pie, we'll get some whiskey and I'll ask my friends to um, read stories um, and we can theme it, you know, pie and whiskey. Oh wait, no, this isn't right. This isn't right at all. We, we started pie and whiskey at Centrum <laughs> before that. So, okay, so back it up. The summer before that, I had met Sam. We were at Centrum, which is a writing conference in, in Port Townsend. Um, and we, with some friends of ours, ended up baking pies and drinking whiskey one night and found out that after, you know, a week of being really awkward around each other, because writers are weirdos, um, we all liked each other. And, and that was a really fun party. Um, and I think that was a moment when, for Sam and I when we both were like, this combination is dynamite, pretty fun. Um, then he had the idea to use that for my, for my tour the next year. And then it just snowballed from there. Like, that was my, that was my introduction to Spokane. I was living in... Seattle or in Vancouver, Washington at that point. I can't remember which. But um, yeah, the first time that I did anything really social in Spokane was just showing up to pie and whiskey with, you know, 10 or 15 pies, whatever we had. And I was blown away <laughs> by the response and by the vibe in the room. Um, and we just kept, we kept doing it because it, it worked, you know. So I guess it was amazing. Kind of like the uh, Don Cardong, you know, starting Bloomsday, pie and whiskey kind of, I mean, you should have t-shirts for every time for people that attend those things. Oh, you know? <laughs> that would be smart. But, you know, people that really, uh, that comes up every year about this time, you know, with Get Lit is the pie and whiskey. So, I mean, what a, what a great event that came out of that, that little community thing that you did over in Port Townsend. Yeah. Well, what do you plan on doing with it in the future? Do you plan on keep doing it every year at Get Lit until people stop showing up? I don't, well, I don't know. I mean, my, next year is our 10 year anniversary. Oh, cool. Got to do something for that. We got to do something huge. We got to have yeah. a great party. I've been really wanting to do something different, just something new. Um, that doesn't mean that we'll stop doing pie and whiskey necessarily, but I would love to get some kind of uh, reading series happening throughout the year uh, that would, that would focus on fantastic writers coming from Spokane and coming into Spokane. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so pie and whiskey, we're, we're going to do it year after year until we stop. And I'm not going to give any more. <laughs> That's that. such a political answer. I love it. 
Now, when Mike asked that question and he said, which came first, the writing came first, uh, I'd like to know more about that. How did you go from, I mean, everybody scribbles a little bit, but how did you go from kind of deciding to put some thoughts on paper to, you know, being published and being what I think is the biggest deal, being in the best American essays, uh, which was, I don't know, that was maybe six years ago or so? Yeah, 2015. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's, and I saw that before I met you. So I was kind of starstruck when I first met you. I'm like, <laughs> I know somebody who's been the best in the best American essays, but how did it go from being this thing that you just sort of started to do? And then you decided to be a, a novelist and, and all that, or excuse me, not a novelist, an essayist, excuse me. Um, I think, I mean, it's something, so lots of people write, lots of people write in their journals or they write articles or they write their blogs, they write, you know, social media rants, what have you, right? I think around um, maybe age 20 or so, I started to realize that like, if, if I wanted to spend all of my time doing this, I had to get serious about it and should get serious about it as soon as possible. Um, Cause it's hard, it's almost impossible to make a, a living as a writer. Um, it's hard to get published. Um, it's hard to build an audience. It's all, all hard. Um, so I, I think my thinking wasn't necessarily that I need to start doing this right now because it's hard. It was more that um, no one is going to be able to tell me exactly how to be a writer. There isn't like some career track or, you know, stepping stone or whatever that you can that you can take to become a writer. So I better just write as much as possible um, and, and just kind of try to keep showing up in this vocation um, and hope that something happens and kind of keep following and saying yes to whatever comes my way. And what's um, the first thing that happened? I think the first thing that happened was I had some teachers at um, Western Washington University that were like, you're a poet you know, you're a prose writer, like you should write. So I think teachers naming that talent or that, you know, that vocation was incredibly powerful. That made me feel like I wasn't nuts to think that I should be trying to do this with my life. Um, and then it just became about, how did it happen? I don't even know anymore. It's all these little tiny things, you know, but one of, one of the really good piece of advice I got when I first moved to Seattle when I was 23 from another artist is he, who was about 10 years older than me at the time. Um, he was saying that the trick to being an artist is just to keep doing it. Like most people will stop and then you will, he, you know, he was 33 or 35 at the time, you know, and, and didn't have, wasn't surrounded by other artists the way that I was surrounded by artists at 23. Um, it's like, just keep going. So I guess- that reminds me of the best advice really in life that I've, maybe I've ever seen. Ira Glass has a video where he says, the people who become writers like you're talking about are the people who are willing to be terrible for a long time. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> because and, and he says, and I'm sorry to take I try not to do this, but I think it's so interesting. He says you become a writer because your taste is way up here mm -hmm. and then you write and what you write is so much lower than what you love to read mm -hmm. that you get frustrated and you quit. And he says you, it, the people who succeed are the people who can live with that space for a super, super long time. And he I, it's a great video. It's on YouTube. And he says, I'm going to play you a radio program that I made 
five years into my career or something like that. And he plays it. And he's just humiliated by it. He's like, I've been working for five years and I'm still terrible. And he said, that I, the re, if, if I have any success, it's just because I was willing to stick to it and just be terrible. Yeah, he's willing to suck. Yes. Well, does, does that ring true for you? That. You will still suck. how to do whatever it is you want to do like I'm trying to uh work I'm working on an essay right now for maybe my next book and it's terrible and I just have to keep (laughs) so what is your edit what is your editing process like then I mean how do you go from making something terrible to something that you're happy with and willing to publish well some of it has to do with um again just showing up every day and I will do I will I will read other people's work when I feel stuck and usually that will help me get unstuck or I'll do research and that will help me get unstuck. I try to think about like, how do I get outside of my head, outside of my own, my, my personal material, outside of myself? That usually helps. Uh, but often it's just like stubbornly writing terrible stuff until you, like, I always feel like I'm hearing the line that I was looking for. Mm. And then once I have that line, I've got the voice, and once I have the voice, I can I can just go. Sure. You're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. You're invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office, each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You'll hear the best in progressive American roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. Art Hour receives support from Saga, the Spokane Arts Grant Award. Information online at spokanearts.org. So you touched on something there, Kate, about working on a new collection of essays. And um, Spokane Arts sends me stuff uh, via e- email every now and then. And um, so recently, there was they they made the Spokane Arts Grant Award, the Saga. And I see you are a recipient. Of Pretty incredible. Very substantial. Grant. So why don't you tell us about this next project a little bit? Oh man, well I want to say a huge thank you to Spokane Arts. They, the support that they give artists is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the grants administrator, Shelly, gave me some fantastic advice for how to, how to get this grant through. And it's, um, I've, oh man, I've been applying for grants for about 15 years and I think I've only won two of them. So if you want to talk <laughs> about resilience, the of resilience as, as an artist, you've got, you've got to be able to put up with rejection. You don't mm-hmm. have to put up with it gracefully. 
Right? So <laughs> it was pretty amazing to get this grant after so many years of applying for other different grants. But um, so it is for, uh, it's going to support uh, me as I try to write The Loud Proof Room, which is going to be a collection of essays about listening through hearing loss. So that essay that Eric was talking about earlier that was in Best American, that essay is also called The Loud Proof Room. And this book is a continuation of that examination of my own hearing loss um, and kind of the way that that um, shapes sensibility. I'm trying to think about um, my sensory limitations um, as something generative, not just, not just a loss. What made you decide to return to that theme? I've been wanting to write that book since I wrote that essay um, and I stopped writing it five years ago um, because I had started to engage so much with, with hearing loss at, or with being hard of hearing as a loss um, that, and I had before never really thought of it as um, something that I was missing out on or, or, or problem. I guess it was just, you know, the way that I sensed the world and whatever. Um, but um, because I'd started to write about and wonder about the things that I was missing, I actually found myself in a pretty dark place and a mournful place around around my own hearing um, and I didn't really want to write from that perspective I needed this time to just kind of I guess heal um, and get back to um, a more optimistic or a more generative uh, playfulness with being hard of hearing um, also the book of difficult fruit became more urgent. So I tend to have, you know, two or three book project ideas that I want to be doing. Um, and the book of difficult fruit just ended up, I figured out how to write that book first. Mm -hmm. So now that that's done, I can, I can turn my attention back to this other book. Well, congratulations on getting your grant. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Good luck to you. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty exciting. And I'm, I'm wondering just, um, a little bit more on this book that you're now working on and kind of your feelings with this. Um, the audience, you know, we have lots of um, students and Eric will tell you this, you know, when, when you're in education that try to navigate already a difficult society in, in some ways, but when you have different disabilities or sensory limitations on certain things, they have a hard time um, vocalizing that or having a, have a hard time finding ways or, or, or just out of maybe just a sense of pride not wanting to get any kind of uh, different accommodations or anything to kind of maybe level the playing field. Um, do you think this book will, will be of, of value for, for kids and, and adults um, to read this and, and have a different perspective that people that have those kind of um, you know, disabilities, I guess. Sure. I mean, I hope so. Yeah. Um, I don't really know yet. I don't know enough about mm -hmm. the book to know exactly where it's, where it's going to go. But the, the reception that I got to the first two pieces tells me that, yes, I mean, I was hearing from people who were also hard of hearing and they were like, I've never seen my experience described before. And it's fantastic to know that other people also experience this. I think, um, I mean, I, I rarely ask for accommodations as well, Mike, and some of that has to do with um, a bunch of different you know, ways I've, de I've developed to not necessarily need them. But I'm also, um, I don't think of my um, 
self as disabled or my disability as one that's kind of um, part of a one that puts me in touch with a community of other people who are disabled, um, which is probably a loss. Um, and that's one, that's a question that I have for myself as I, as I go in to write the book is kind of how does experiencing, um, uh, being, how does being hard of hearing and experiencing that mostly alone affect how I think about it, uh, affect the writing that I do about it? Um, and how might I, I guess, find other people and start um, perhaps understanding their experiences and, and just see what happens when, when I hear those stories. Yeah. I don't want to make any promises, because <laughs> I just don't know. But And that's, that was the next question I was going to ask, because you mentioned that you have a couple of books going, and then you figured out how to write the one before you were figured out how to write the other one. And then when Mike asked you that question, you said, well, I don't know what the book's going to be yet. And I think sometimes people look at writers who feel like they have something to say and they say it. And it sounds to me like your writing is a lot more about discovering what you want to say. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, the, the whole process of discovery that happens, happens for me through writing. I, if I approach the page with an idea, that piece is dead. I can't even write it most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so the book of difficult fruit, the structure, um, it's more like a web. It's not really a, a linear narrative. And that kind of web-like structure really arose because with each chapter, I had to discover what it was about, why I was attracted to it, what the, you know, the hook was for lack of a better word um, and then also how it related to whatever my overarching obsessions were obsessions that maybe or feelings that maybe i didn't even have words for i think engaging in if writing can engage with the unsaid that's that's just my favorite mm -hmm. i mean i keep I, I keep talking about this lately because i've written about book about fruit but there's that scene at the beginning of their eyes were watching god or janie is under a pear tree and watching bees go in and out of blossoms and she just has this this epiphany like this is life like and and, and the what Zora Neale Hurston does in that scene um you know the language is beautiful but it goes even beyond language and it's something that stuck with me since I first read that book when I was 15 or 16 years old um and I'm always just hoping through this this process of discovery to just touch that unsayable bit a little bit does it also make you nervous or anxious to know that you might discover something that's going to be maybe frightening or i mean i always i i i always get nervous if i have to sit down and try to write something because i don't know what's going to peel off and i might not like <laughs> like what's coming out yeah you know mike my fear is actually more maybe i won't find anything Maybe I will just write a boring, boring essay. That's, I'm way more afraid of that than of <laughs> discovering something scary, I guess. Yeah. Honestly, that does sound more frightening to me. Right? <laughs> Maybe I will bore myself and my reader. <laughs> right. Oh my God, I've got nothing in there. <laughs> now I'm thinking at my age, if I sat down to try to write something just for the sake of discovery and I didn't find anything, I would really be dejected now that you right? said that. I'd be, my head would be hanging low. I'd be going, what? <laughs> now we've given, given Mike another thing to worry about. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so Kate, I want to talk about too, I mean, you're an artist, but you've also been involved in sporting the yards. And I met you when we were on the Spark board and you were the uh, Spark Central board president, but you had come from the west side of the state and you had worked with at least one organization or maybe more over there can you talk about what you've done in supporting the arts not necessarily as a writer but being part of these organizations totally well when i graduated from uh, my undergrad at western i was trying to figure out how to be a writer um and it seemed the most obvious thing to do was to move to seattle and try to work at richard hugo house which is the literary arts center it's still there on capitol hill um, I was able to, through volunteering, kind of get my foot in the door and then kick it open, um, which began my uh, career in non, you know, arts nonprofits. Um, so I, I, I ran the front desk there. I did development. I did programs, but but most of all, I worked with a really incredible creative team of people um, who were willing to put in, you know, sixty-hour work weeks. Um, to make really magical things happen and try to and try to make um, resources available to as many people as possible. I think that what what I got really excited about while working there was realizing how um, important and possible it is to try to hook people up with the resources that they need to thrive. Um, you know, and that continued through you know coming to work with you guys and Spark. That's what we we did at Spark Central as well. Um, but I also was involved in like the Seattle Edible Book Festival or the, um, uh, oh gosh, the Book Arts, it wasn't the Book Arts Guild, it was Seattle Book Arts something or other. Oh wow, it's been so long now, I can't remember. Can you explain a little bit more about what the Seattle Edible Books Festival oh, is? That sounds really it's interesting. It's so fun, it's so fun. So you just invite people to make um, edible books. So for example, I did because you can, I'm obsessed with Zora Neale Hurston. I did their pies. We're watching God, <laughs> and, I, and I made a I made a cherry pie, and I got this um, Virgin Mary stamp from Archie McPhee, and I stamped the top of my pie so that when it baked, the Virgin Mary appeared in the top of this pie, and I you know brought it to the Edible Book Festival. Um, someone else, oh Ellen Ziegler, she's a wonderful artist in Seattle. She made um, a farmer's almanac, and it was of this beautiful edible paper, and she'd sprouted all these beans um, and and lentils and things, and and laid them in rows so that it looked like a, a field. Um, we had towering cakes, um, lots and lots and lots and lots of puns. Tequila mockingbird, you know, the bun also rises. <laughs> Etc. Yeah, and that's it. So you just you just come with your best your best cake, whether it's funny or delicious or beautiful, um, and everybody wins a prize because we all get to eat. Things. I was just going to ask: Is that the culmination of it? Oh, just yeah. a big gorge fest? Oh yeah. Yeah. And do they still do that? What's that? Do they still do that festival? I have no idea. I've kind of lost track of all that. They happen all over the United States. So uh, we need to get one here. Definitely. All it, all it takes is someone to be like, we need to do that. I'm going right. to, I'm going to do that. And then it will happen. Right. Have it at the, at the woman's club or something. That'd be a great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll be a judge too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be a judge. I'll try every one of those. I'll try every one of those. No, but, but yeah. So I had this other, other life as kind of an arts administrator and actually thought that maybe that was going to be a career for me before I, um, decided no writing is, is just going to be it. But I think that um, 
it's just so super important and super fulfilling to be part of um, arts organizations. That's something that's bigger than myself um, and something that is trying to bring the arts um, to community members who might not otherwise, you know, run across it in their daily lives. Trying to keep art from being verified, which yeah. I guess felt like a huge concern when I was coming out of college. And at this point, I guess, I, don't, I can't tell, is it, is it more accessible than it used to be? Is there are a lot more people making a lot more art or? It depends on what you mean by accessible. I mean, as far as getting your work shown, I, yeah, that's, that's tricky. Cause I think a lot of people are making art, but uh, there's that paradox of it's never been easier to put your music or your art on the internet, but it's never been harder to get anybody to look at it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so Kate, you are uh, a new mom. True. Motherhood. And, and so how is, how is that going and all the fulfillment and all of that? And has that, um, just just going through that experience, has that changed your perspective on life or the way you look at things any different than prior? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that a leading question? Obvious question, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, exactly yeah. the same. Exactly <laughs> the same. Changed a bit. Changed. <laughs> No, Sai is, Sai is amazing. I mean, just to have you being his mom has been so fun. Um, and I always had this um, fantasy, I actually kind of still have this fantasy that like what, I, I could have two lives and in one life I would have seven children and I would just enjoy being a mom and then the other I would just be a writer and I'd have no kids and I would get to be selfish and um, have all of my time to myself. Um, and I guess I'm at a point now where it feels like I get to have those two lives are meeting in the middle in a way that is working. Um, and it's deeply joyful and cool. And, and uh, Sam and I are inside or just in our little family club. Um, it's, I don't even know how to talk about it. It's just fantastic. Well, I do want I haven't to been writing. I can't, I can't concentrate right now, but some of that has to do with the book coming out rather than the baby. So, but that, and that, that will be, I think finding time to write is going to be a challenge, but it was always a challenge. There's always something that's coming, knocking on the door, trying to interrupt you. So I guess I'm not really worried about finding that time again. I will find it. Right. And I was going to ask if, if, being a mother has changed the content of your writing, but it sounds like you haven't had a chance to figure that out yet because you haven't had enough time to write. A little <laughs> bit. I mean, and that I, I was, I've been able to finish, you know, like three short pieces since he was born and, you know, like the one of the birth announcement that the Inlander ran, that was right. all about him. So that, yeah, I, that whole thing was him. Um, but, and you mentioned Sam and Sam Ligon is a writer as well. And I've always been curious about two, because often we've, um, we've talked to artists, couples or pairs, but they're in at least different enough genres that it feels like they're doing their separate thing. But I've always been curious, are, are, do you and Sam share your writing with each other? Because I think it could be one or the other. It could either be, you do not look at this until I'm done, or it can be much more collaborative. So I'm curious which one that is for you. Yeah, for us, having a healthy collaboration is completely, um, it's at the center of our relationship. 
So we, we've got to respect each other as artists. I mean, that doesn't, that, that means, you know, loving what each other writes, but that also means um, giving um, serious critiques and helping each person right. develop. But that's what I've wondered about because I mean, when it's somebody who loves you and they, they have to tell you something so hard to hear, I just, yeah, is, I mean, do you find, I mean, we I guess what you're saying. We have to what? be able to trust each other. That's yeah. the most important thing. And what I need, you know, we each need to be able to trust when um, someone says it, when we say it's good, it is good. And right. when they it needs some more work, it does need some more work. Um, the other thing about um, that's so important for our relationship is the way that we give each other space to write. Um, and that's kind of, that's a daily scheduling um, uh, uh, yeah, thing that, um, I don't know, it, it preserves our union in a really, really important way. Now in a typical, you said space to write in a, in a typical time, and obviously you're still figuring out what's typical for you with the new baby, but are you the type of person who will sit down and try to write at the same time every day or produce the same number of words every day? Or are you the type of person who kind of does it um, randomly and haphazardly and whenever the muse speaks to you? Well, I try to write every day and I before was able to have a good chunk of time every day to get some writing done. And I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily know what kind of writing it would be. I always have, I feel like two or three projects going at once. So the thing I end up asking myself is what do I, what am I able to do today? You know, can I work on this essay? Can I work on this poem? Should I just go write a recipe, do some recipe testing? All those things are totally different headspaces, totally different energies. Um, and I don't necessarily know until I wake up kind of what is going to be possible. Um, having lots of time to waste feels really important. You know? What, so, do you mean? what do you mean? I think what I mean is, is that if I know that I only have, you know, six hours a week to do my writing in, um, I'm going to put a ton of pressure on myself to be productive. Mm -hmm. And I think pressure to be productive just kills, kills art making for me anyway. Um, I need to be able to um, just, it, the other thing about wasting time is half the time it doesn't end up being a waste. Mm -hmm. Half the time you're procrastinating, right? And you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. But the thing that you're doing instead of the thing that you were supposed to be doing becomes the thing that you need to do mm -hmm. because it, it led you into a productive way. So that's also what I mean about you need enough time to be able to waste it. You need to feel like you don't have to be completely focused, I think. I agree. And the thing that I tell myself a lot too is when I'm procrastinating, my unconscious mind is still doing That's a lot of work because my mind knows what I'm not doing. And I think it still does a heck of a lot of work. I mean, that's what I tell myself anyway, but I think it does a heck of a lot of work while I'm doing other things. Mm -hmm. yeah. I believe that. Go ahead, Kate. Oh, Kate. I, said, I believe that. I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kate, does, um, you know, you you just mentioned, you know, creating new recipes or trying out any, you know, trying out new, maybe different kind of taste combinations with your with your baking. Do you find any similarities between crafting a particular taste uh, in your cooking uh, and crafting sentences like to form a, a poem or an essay? Actually, I don't. They are they are very different, um, and that's good. Um, that's really good. There's something I get out of cooking that I don't get out of writing and I go to cooking because writing is driving me crazy, for example. 
Like I love just the, I mean, but okay. So the the thing that they might have in common though is the 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 pr pursuit of quiet, and I mean quiet in my own mind. So when I'm really rolling in the kitchen, it's usually because I've got you know like a ton of plums or a ton of rhubarb, and I've got to figure out what to do with it all, and I'm chopping it up, and I'm coming up with you know. Uh, uh, jam plans and all that and, and the whole day goes by right and and the the busyness of my hands just makes my brain go quiet in a way that I crave um, and that same quiet is something that I crave from great poems from a great book of essays from a great novel I don't think that I it's really hard for me to reach that when I'm actually writing but I'm always shooting for that I'm always trying to feel like I'm alone in a, in a quiet room um, talking to someone mm -hmm. just outside the door, maybe <laughs> talking to myself or talking to God. I don't know. You just mentioned poems. And earlier when I uh, asked you about when you decided to become a writer, you said one of your teachers, one of your professors said you're a poet. Uh, but I, I mean, it seems like you found your, your, your format is essays. Do you still write poetry or has that kind of fallen by the wayside? I do. And, and it seems like it's fallen by the wayside because I do it mostly privately right now. And, mm -hmm. and I've had a long argument with myself around that. I think I, I had, you know, an ambitious young person's expectation to write a great book of poems and, you know, go out there and, and be a poet. Um, but I've found that the practice of poetry feels a lot more private than that, like I, to me that um, I'm unable to perform. And I mean that um, in that when I have that expectation of um, kind of having the identity of the poet, I can't really write. When I'm trying to write, you know, something that'll last the ages, I can't really write. I mean, that's where the, the um, chapbook, Seven Prayers to Kathy McMorris Rogers became so fun. So those are poems addressed to our representative, Kathy McMorris Rogers. They made the most sense, you know, in what, like July through November of 2018 when she was running against Lisa Brown. And it was so fun to just um, kind of let myself off the, off the hook for all the things that I think poems should do and just write some poems that maybe could do something in this brief amount of time. Um, and so I'm just, I'm thinking of poems also as, I guess as prayers. And I mean, I was, I was raised Catholic. I don't practice anymore, um, but I do still find, um, I guess the, the music of the language of prayers and the quietude of a prayer, the like supplicants, that's even a word, um, of the prayer uh, feel to me, like the, my favorite poems all contain those, qual those qualities. And I am, I'm, my taste is up here, my ability is down here, and I'm just, you know, not quite good enough yet. And maybe I never will be. Uh, and that's, that's okay. Actually, I can still write poems. They're mine. So now I, I got asked this. You just mentioned taste. And so when you, I mean, can you eat like a Marie Callender's pie or something like that? <laughs> you kidding? No. <laughs> Knowing that you've got your own craft. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's not happening. I won't, even, I, I won't even eat other people's pie. I'm such a snot. <laughs> I'm just not interested. I only want to eat my own. Oh, man. That's interesting because I just read an article where they asked a whole bunch of chefs, what's your favorite junk food? Uh 
Uh-huh. And it was kind of disgusting, the things yeah. that these chefs said that they liked. I don't remember anything, in, uh, any particular chef, but it was just, so I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you don't have this guilty pleasure like a McDonald's apple pie or something oh, like that. that you, oh, sorry. I think I misunderstood the question then. I won't eat a Marie Calendar, but I definitely, definitely have so-called guilty pleasures. I don't feel guilty about it. You have like, guilty baking pleasures, though? Well, guilty baking <laughs> pleasures. No, no. What I like is cheese in a can. Oh, well, and the pie that I got from you was uh, cheese-infused apple pie, so uh, that was good. That was a really good pie. Yeah, I can attest your pies are very good. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that you've got the book going based on your essay from 2015. Mm -hmm. And then you also mentioned you have multiple projects going at the same time. Do you have anything else that's just even at at earlier stages that you're still just letting percolate? Yeah. So I really want to do a book with my cheese mentor, Laura Lee Misterly, up at Quillisasket Farm. So through the Washington Center for Cultural Traditions, she and I were at, are a uh, mentor apprentice pair. I've been learning how to make cheese her way um, since 2018 now. Um, and I would love to just keep spending time with her in the kitchen, figure out what the story is, figure out what the form is, and, and write about this experience and write about her. Um, what, what her and her husband, Rick, Mr. Lee, do up at Quillisasket is incredibly special um, and a huge influence on the culinary scene in Spokane. I mean, they're behind many of the, of the chefs in Spokane, hmm. so. How did you get connected with them? Um, you know, I heard about them when I lived in Seattle, but from the drive to Quillisasket from Seattle is about six hours long. <laughs> so I just, I kind of, you know, filed it away, you know, to, to examine later when it, you know, I was in Northeast Washington State, I guess. Uh, but then I moved to Spokane and we had a friend in common. So he took me and Sam up. We all had dinner and Laura, Laura Lee and I hit it off. Um, and then this program through the Washington Center for Cultural Traditions, uh, premiered um and we applied to be part of their first class it was it was one of those things remember how you were like how did you start getting published how did you Mm -hmm. it was a moment like that where something fell into my lap this opportunity with the washington center for cultural traditions apprenticeship program i found out about it and i thought i should we should do that um so we applied did it and that has formed a relationship that hopefully will culminate in a book so you just said yes yeah it's about saying yes yeah. Paying attention, having stuff come your way. Stuff will come your way all the time, little and little and littler and littler and then big, maybe. Um, just say yes to all of it until you're overwhelmed and you have to start saying no. Yeah, that's a great lesson. Uh, you had mentioned way at the start of the interview, too, that you've been checking social media to see if anybody likes you. Now, the question I have, though, is... I mean, you have to have a super thick skin to do stuff like that, right? Because you're probably going to read stuff that you didn't want to see, right? Uh, how, how do you handle that? Are you pretty thick skinned or does that, does that really get to you? I don't, I'm not very thick skinned. Oh. No. Um, but I think I have to develop a sense of pride and kind of confidence in that I know I'm happy with what I made. Um, and if I can get to there with the piece of writing, it can go out into the world and suffer all kinds of abuse, you know, if need be. Um, and it will irritate me and hurt my feelings, but I won't, you know, 
perseverate on it. I think one of, <laughs> I got a, I got an Amazon review that started, I weep for the trees that were sacrificed to print this book. <laughs> wow. Well, I guess I wasn't to their taste. I mean, that's the other thing to remember is like a, part of the rejection is it's, it's, it's a taste game. I mean, yeah. just, I mean, it's hard to say people, the judges just didn't like you. I mean, how do you not take that personally until you remember that like you've got likes and dislikes too. And a lot of them are not personal. A lot of them are just, you know, you moving through your day, knowing what you like and what you don't like. So that's why you gotta keep trying until you find, find the judge that likes you. So you have a taste for essays and kind of created your own, like all writers do when they get to your stage, um, your own voice and maybe your own style of essay. What is it about the essay that you gravitate towards now more so than maybe just like a short story or novel or anything like that? You know, I can't write fiction to save my life. So we'll get that off the table right now. Um, but I have gravitated towards essays um, instead of poems or in addition to poems, I think because I was getting so frustrated with what I could not, what I, the way that I wrote, I could not include arguments in my poems without turning them into this didactic mush. Um, but I could have these kind of arguments in essays and for some reason it worked. So that's not to say that you can't have an argument, you can't have rhetoric and poetry, like Shakespeare's got rhetoric you know, at the wazoo. He's, he's a master at that kind of thing. Um, but it is to say that the way that I, the poems that I love and the way that I write poems couldn't contain some of the questions that I had or some of the, the curiosities that I had, or maybe some of the lines that I was hearing in my head. Um, and essays could, essays were, it's not necessarily that it's a more forgiving form. I think it just, um, I think that I'm less concerned with, um, what the language is doing in an essay, though I still am concerned with that, and more concerned with how do I get to um, a way where I'm relating a bunch of different ideas, a bunch of images, a bunch of emotions. Um, that's gotten, that's pretty an abstract way to say that. I don't know. It sounds like you have much higher standards for poetry than you do for essays. I think I do. For yourself, yeah, in, in for particular. Myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so you, you feel more able to maybe explore in an essay than you do in a poem. Yeah, well, I think that what I end up exploring in the essay is a lot more personal, too. Mm -hmm. It's a lot, I'm a lot more comfortable um, tying what I'm saying to myself. Um, where in a poem, I think I'm just, I'm, a, I'm not really interested in that at all. I'm interested in kind of a play with language, um, a, a feeling, um, yeah. Uh, um, something mysterious that I don't really know how to name. Well, uh, we are actually out of time, amazingly wow. enough. I know, I know. We, yeah, we've almost done an hour. We're at 50 some minutes. But before we go, uh, I would like maybe you to tell people where they can get your new book, uh, the titles of the books, if they can still get your chat book, your, your sure. pie and whiskey, all that stuff. Tell us about where they can uh, immerse themselves in Kate Lebo. Okay, so my books are, the newest one is The Book of Difficult Fruit, 
There's Pie School, that's a cookbook. There's Pie and Whiskey, which is an anthology of fantastic writing from the reading series Pie and Whiskey. There is a chapbook of poems called Seven Prayers to Kathy McMorris Rogers. You can get all of these books at Auntie's Books, downtown Spokane. You can get them at Wishing Tree Books in the Perry District in Spokane. Um, you can find them online through IndieBound. All right, say bye, say hi to Sam inside. Love you. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.